Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. This is episode 66, Reframing Sexual Addiction with Dr. Samuel Perry. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing reframing sexual addiction with Dr. Samuel Perry, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oklahoma and the author of three books, including the one that we will discuss most in the episode, Addicted to Lust, Pornography in the Lives of Conservative Protestants, which came out in 2019 with Oxford University Press. Team members from the two cities on the episode include Amber Bowen, Grace Emmett, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So today we're talking about pornography, sexual addiction, and you know these sorts of heavy topics. What are some of the things that you all took away from this conversation with Dr. Perry? I think one of the things that really resonated with me is because of Atlanta and where the shooter claimed that he had a sexual addiction, and this has been the narrative that has dominated uh, the analysis of that event. It, I really appreciated having some empirical data, and as an empiricist myself, having some empirical data about uh, what sexual addiction is, what sexual addiction actually looks like, uh, and actually some empirical data about how um, how the church can respond to sexual addiction and even respond more broadly to issues of pornography and how we talk about sex within the church, so, such that these things do not then become, you know, even trend towards being classifiable as addictions. One of the other things that we were going to talk about uh, is how the strategies that evangelicals use to oppose pornography usage and the ways that uh, they discuss it are often self-defeating in the sense that they create more problems than they attempt to solve. Um, and they induce a lot of psychological distress and anxiety. And uh, Dr. Perry will be discussing his research on that. Dr. Perry and his research also talks about some of the gender dynamics and how we approach pornography, particularly pornography as exclusively a guy's issue and something that in a sense affirms um, the, the trope of what it means to be a man um, within conservative evangelical circles as opposed to women who may struggle with lust and pornography as well as, as the men do, but because of the culture that we've created, it's a lot harder for women to talk about that, that they don't have the same structures and systems to be able to disclose information and to seek help. And then on top of that, there's sort of this stereotype that if a woman struggles with pornography, it's, it's a very unwomanly thing to do. It, it's, it's almost like she's a a traitor of her gender as well. And so there's some stigma surrounding it that I think he unpacks in a helpful way. One thing I found really useful was uh, Dr. Perry's category of moral incongruence and this idea that um, a group can sort of hold a belief really strongly, uh, but then actually sort of disavow that in their own kind of personal practice. Uh, And particularly the way that that has kind of shame attached to it and how that manifests quite differently for men and women in conservative Protestant environments. Dr. Perry also talks about this concept of sexual exceptionalism within the evangelical world where sexual sin is really the unforgivable sin. It's the greatest sin. It's the most severe sin. And that is actually the sin that disqualifies people from ministry, that uh, 
causes them to lose jobs over and above other types of sins. So when that particular sin takes such a heightened position, it becomes something that is talked about all the time, uh, but never in ways that are actually helpful for people who are struggling with it and dealing with it. And now for our conversation with Dr. Perry. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Perry. Yeah, thanks for having me. So given the recent events of what took place in Atlanta, in which the shooter stated that his motivations were that he had this sex addiction, wondering if you could speak to that claim uh, and, and sort of all the polyvalence of everything that was at work with that event in light of your expertise on addiction and, and particularly pornographic addictions. Sure. Um, you know, when, when the horrific incidents uh, occurred uh, and, it, and it came out that he was a, a young evangelical man, uh, I, I confess I, I wasn't really surprised to learn that he, he, he considered himself an addict to sex or pornography. Uh, it's actually a pretty common uh, narrative among especially younger white evangelical men. I uh, was looking at data that we just collected back in February. So this isn't anything I had to do with uh, a book I'd written recently or, or uh, previous research on pornography, but just data we collected February uh, showed that uh, evangelical men, uh, 30% of them uh, considered themselves addicted to pornography. So uh, almost, almost one out of three. Uh, the irony there, and this is what I, what I have shown in previous research and, and my colleagues and I have, uh, have looked into, is that evangelical men, are, uh, they look at pornography a lot less often uh, than, than non-evangelical men. So you have this paradox. You have this uh, situation in which evangelical men don't, don't look at porn with any kind of regularity uh, that would, that would uh, evidence some kind of a clinical, what we would understand as a clinical addiction to pornography. Uh, but they would are are considerably more likely to consider themselves porn addicts or sex addicts, uh, and they are the ones lobbying for uh, sex addiction and pornography addiction to be included on what we call the DSM-5. This is this Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is the, the for psychiatry and psychology. This is really the manual of what is defined as as what. Um, and so, what's going on there? It suggests that that this language of addiction is really a cultural and moral definition. Um, just to give you an example, so uh, you can you can be uh, physically, literally physically addicted to caffeine as an evangelical Christian. Uh, you you could brag about it on your church website. I mean, you could have pastors saying like coffee addict, and like this is something that they don't feel ashamed of. And they're not embarrassed. They, you know, they brag about it. Uh, they could have coffee mugs that say something like that, and and uh, and 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 it would it would actually evidence more of an addiction, right? Like how like you could spend over a thousand dollars on uh, a year on caffeine, right? Like your coffee, especially if you're a coffee snob or sodas. And, and uh, you, you might even acknowledge that if you, if you didn't have caffeine, like I, I would say, if I didn't have caffeine this morning, I, I would have withdrawals. I mean, physical withdrawals. I would, I would have a headache, near migraine, you know, go to the hospital symptoms uh, of caffeine withdrawal. And yet I'm not ashamed of these kinds of things. And, and I'm not, uh, I don't, I don't make accountability groups to keep me from caffeine and I don't have like a, a some kind of a, a accountability software on my computer or my like, you know, coffee mug that keeps me from drinking caffeine. But this is, uh, but this is actually, I think this suggests that, that 
what we consider addiction and a problematic addiction, something that is so uh, harmful or, or bothersome to us that we would engage in all kinds of strategies and erect a whole subculture around, around avoiding those kinds of things. Um, it would suggest to me that this, this language of addiction is something that is moral and it, and it reflects on our values and the things that we prioritize as a culture. So in this situation within the evangelical subculture, you have a, you have a situation in which uh, it's something I, in my book, Addicted to Lust, I call sexual exceptionalism. And this is just this, this cultural idea that sex, sexual sin is the worst sin. It's the one that everybody knows God has a more difficult time forgiving. Uh, not, not racism or greed or uh, lack of love for my neighbor, uh, but sexual sin. And, and we tend to define ourselves. And I, I speak as my, my, from my background as an evangelical Christian. Uh, uh, we, we, we're tempted to define ourselves almost completely in terms of our success or failure in the sexual arena. Uh, we reserve the, the language of immorality to refer to sexual sin almost primarily. Uh, if, if I were to, how many college guys, Christian college guys, have, have I, could I ask, uh, how you doing spiritually, man? How, how's your walk with the Lord going? And they would answer almost completely in terms of whether or not they masturbated to porn uh, lately. You know, hey, it's been a good week or it's been a bad week. You know, what does that mean? It doesn't mean I, I spent time in the Bible. Maybe it does, but most likely it's not going to refer to like my love for others or I grew in my passion for the, you know, for the unreached. It is, it is going to be more in terms of, yeah, I, uh, I masturbated twice over the weekend and it was just a really bad weekend uh, and I'm not doing well. Uh, and this this fills up young, especially young Christian men, young Christian women as well, to the extent that that's becoming a more prevalent thing. Uh, but it fills up young Christian men with a sense of shame and distress and anxiety um, to where they negatively define themselves by their own addiction. I'm a porn addict. I'm a sex addict. That characterizes their sense of self in a way that just doesn't happen for others. Now, another another kind of irony of this of this situation, I think one that, that may have manifested itself here is that on the same survey that I'm talking about that we fielded in February, it's a national survey, we found that uh, white evangelical men uh, were far more likely than any other group, mainline Protestants, Catholics, other, Christ other religious groups, to say that they hide their porn use, suggesting that there is, despite all of the talk about like accountability software and accountability groups that are just set up for this kind of sin, um, that they're the most likely to be ashamed of it and to hide it from people and to try to deal with it in isolation. So it, I'm not at all suggesting that, that this kind of thing was the driver of, of the horrific events that we witnessed and, and read about. Uh, but all, all of this to say, I'm, I'm not at all surprised that this is a big part of the narrative and that, that a lot of religious readers to this situation and people who are evaluating this want to seize on that and to say, oh, it must have been the porn. It must have been the sex. It must have been his... His, his obsession with this that kind of made him mentally unwell and led to this kind of thing, not misogyny or racism or trying to, 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 to uh, tone down the conversation around those things and elevate the sexual part of it. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, what, what your research suggests to us is that it's not just the sexual addiction, quote unquote, um, alone, but also the culture that causes sexual addiction to have these kind of psychological detrimental psychological effects um so in your book you talk about moral incongruity quite a bit um could you say you know uh, how you're using that term and how it, it's helpful to analyze 
this situation and how uh, what the relationship between kind of Christian cultural interpretation of porn and porn use is and its effects on people. So um, this is going back to like the psychology literature. I'm a sociologist who, who does a lot of work with clinical psychologists. One of my co-authors uh, is, a, is a clinical psychologist at Bowling Green uh, and has done a lot of work in this area. But I, I was bothered by uh, work on cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance refers to the psychological distress or anxiety around my, my two different beliefs or different beliefs and situations not act, adding up. Uh, it originally referred to the situation of like somebody who believes that the world is going to end uh, and they believe with everything that that's going to happen and it didn't happen. And so how do they wrestle with that cognitive dissonance? So it refers to sort of a mental state. And I became uh, bothered a few years ago by the, by the lack of, of awareness of how these kinds of situations are culturally and socially informed. And so moral incongruence was really uh, my kind of theoretical uh, intervention into that to explain that a lot of a lot of this cognitive distress that we see among people has to do with how things are morally defined, whether or not somebody is willfully violating something that is a core moral value for them. And so for evangelicals, they were a fascinating test case because uh, they, because of sexual exceptionalism, they value sexual purity uh, uh, almost more than any other kind of obedience or, 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 or morality or a measure of their, or their own morality or spiritual state. Uh, and yet at the same time, they are less likely to, to violate kind of their sexual morals than say other uh, religious groups, and yet they still do it. And so you have the situation where there are a lot of people who are saying like, porn is horrible and it's never justified, yet they're looking at porn, right? Or, or premarital sex or those kinds of things. And so this creates a situation where you have a, a, a larger prevalence of this population engaging in sexual behavior that they also condemn. Uh, and so the idea of moral incongruence was kind of uh, trying to understand what that does, what, what this situation, this contradiction does to a culture, a subculture, what this does to individuals within that subculture. And so the book really was focusing on uh, the spiritual consequences, the religious, con you know, how, how people who are dealing with moral incongruence walk away from their faith. Uh, because they're so distressed by it, because they're so frustrated by this. You know, how many how many interviews did I have with with men in that book where they said, you know, I'm so frustrated that I've prayed so hard to defeat this sin in my life. And I keep asking God, why, why can't you just make this like any other sin I don't want to commit? Like, I, I don't want to murder people and I don't want to assault people or rob people. Why can't masturbation just be like that? You know, where you just take it away. I don't want to cuss anymore. I don't want to, to do drugs or drink. Uh, anymore. And, and I, I don't want to do those things, you know, and so why is this thing the only thing? And, and, and it caused some real spiritual strife, right? Like they would doubt God's even, even God's existence. Like, how could God still let me wrestle with this thing, even though I'm begging and pleading and trying so hard to get this out of my life and it's still there. Um, and so it created this ferocious uh, anxiety and distress leading to walking away from accountable relationships, walking out of church leadership, walking away from even devotional stuff. Like they wouldn't want to, they wouldn't want to even look at the Bible. They wouldn't want to pray. Uh, one guy called it pulling an Adam, right? Like I just want to hide in the bushes like Adam, right? I just want to hide from God. Uh, uh, you know, and it's ridiculous as if God couldn't see me. And yet, and yet he, he would say like, I just don't want to confront this fact that I'm, I, God is ashamed of me and embarrassed of me because of my failure in this area. Uh, and so I, I do think a lot of this a lot of the story of, of evangelicalism and sex right in this current moment is, is dealing with this really, and I think a worsening, a worsening reality for them 
that they are they are just as technologically uh, with it as every other as every other group. Uh, I show early on in the book that they're just as likely to be on social media, more likely to be on Facebook. Uh, they're just as likely to be uh, on the internet. They're just as likely to have iPhones and to have them at young ages, and and just slightly less likely to look at pornography. Uh, and yet that moral that 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 sexual exceptionalism is still there. And so you're basically facing down a situation as a subculture where more and more of your people are going to be dealing with this contradiction between their values uh, and their behavior. And actually, this goes beyond just pornography. Like we've shown in a recent study, uh, it actually works the same way with homosexuality. Uh, it works the same way with premarital sex, that if you are uh, willfully engaging in some kind of a sexual behavior that, that you feel is at odds with some kind of core value for you. Uh, then it's going to manifest itself in a psychological distress, unhappiness, um, you know, anxiety, depression, that kind of that kind of thing. Thanks, Sam. Um, really fun the, your category of um, of moral incongruence. Really a useful category, uh, especially as it, it is so tightly related to cognitive dissonance. Right. But there's features of cognitive dissonance which don't seem to be uh, at so strongly at play within. Uh, a moral dissonance or, or moral incongruence. So uh, one of the, the big things for Festinger when he came up with the category of cognitive dissonance was that people will engage in uh, minimizing of their, of, of, or minimizing of activities in order to uh, justify the satiation. So if someone's on a diet and they eat a chocolate bar, uh, that is seen as a minimal uh, reward for uh, for being on this diet and therefore it's minimized in its risk it's minimized in its impact on the, on the diet and mm. it's done so because it reduces the cognitive dissonance but it strikes me that the in the evangelical um narrative around porn and and as you said around homosexuality and and sex before marriage and other moral categories that is actually heightened um there is not the the it's not as if a little bit of porn use will satiate the the person but that little bit of giving in to the temptation is actually a heightening of the dissonance that occurs rather than a, a lessening of the dissonance yeah. uh, which seems to be the inversion of that function of cognitive dissonance in, in the traditional literature interest in your reflections on that um especially as we're in a situation where uh, the DSM-5 has moved further from, um, from where the, the church would sit. Uh, so I noticed a while ago, DSM-5 decategorized uh, hypersexuality disorder um, and has basically removed uh, all instances of, um, of non-physical addiction disorders, uh, except for gambling, I believe. Right. Um, and so all of the traditional moral categories of uh, of addictive disorders have been removed from the DSM. And so there seems to be a widening gulf. Do, do you think that's impacting on, on the constructions that are being made by evangelical leaders in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. So I've got, I've got a, a number of responses. So the first, this idea of, 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 uh, of alleviating some of the cognitive distress that, that comes from this, this kind of moral violation. I saw this manifest itself in a couple of different ways. So among people who were not evangelicals, uh, so like say exactly like more liberal Protestants that I interviewed are Catholics who, who still thought like the sexual sin was kind of bad, but they just didn't holistically kind of define themselves. They, they would, they would often define it as the, the, the porn use as better than at least like other things. 
so like it's at least it's better than sleeping around. At least it's better than, you know, I could be doing this with a physical person, but like the porn use kind of keeps me from straying uh, and, and, and doing what I shouldn't be doing. And so they, they, they defined it in a way that I think alleviated that kind of guilt or at least distanced themselves from it rhetorically to say that, well, like at least it's not with a physical uh, person. But with cognitive dissonance, you can also handle it in, in a couple of different ways. You can, uh, you can uh, change the behavior, uh, like I think what you're, you're talking about to adjust that and accommodate for uh, this dissonance that you feel, or you can change your values and beliefs. And this is what I'm talking about with like the, the, the solution for, for some of these folks was to actually back away from religious values and back away from religious participation because it made them feel so guilty. Going to church made them feel like crap. Uh, reading the Bible made them feel condemned or made them feel guilty. Uh, talking to other religious people or participating in some kind of Bible study where they were leading, uh, leading made them feel like a hypocrite. Uh, and so their way of alleviating that guilt was to try to create some distance, the pulling the atom kind of, kind of maneuver uh, where they where they tried to back away. Now on, on your on your point about say the DSM five and it kind of moving away from from where evangelicals are in terms of categorizing um, uh, sexual behavior as sort of like an addiction. Um, I, I actually I, I I think this is a fascinating paradox. I published a a an article that came out this week. In fact, uh, that uh, the people who have historically sought to curb pornography or ban it or put at this Utah, I think is, is now taking steps to uh, basically have your phone. If you buy a phone in Utah, it like it, it blocks uh, porn automatically. Uh, they, the people have recommended like warning labels being put on pornography. And all of this revolves around the narrative of science that science has demonstrated that porn will, will make you a, a rapist or it will, it will turn you into some kind of a rampaging uh, sex monster. Uh, who is defined by addiction and escalation and dysregulation and all of these kind of negative things. Um, the irony, though, and this is what I point out in this in this recent study, is is that um, uh, even though the narrative around pornography has become more science oriented, that it's it's less about morals. So, like even among religious people, like uh, uh, I've got books by Barna Group and Covenant Eyes and uh, uh, groups that. Uh, are trying to really, you know, discourage people from getting into pornography and they're appealing to science. They're not just like quoting the Bible. They're saying, look, porn will do this to your brain. Studies show uh, this is scientific kind of stuff. It would suggest that they're appeal appealing to an, another authority, like a scientific authority. Um, and uh, it, and it, that might suggest that like, okay, maybe... Um, Maybe the narrative around pornography, around opposing pornography and, and questioning pornography, whether that's a healthy thing for society, maybe it's becoming more science-based. Maybe it's less connected to religion and more connected to this like kind of secular reasoning. Uh, and in the fact, it's opposite. Uh, it, it has actually become more connected to your views of the Bible over time, dating back to the 1980s. Uh, your belief about like whether pornography ought to be limited or banned or you know, made illegal or that kind of thing is connected more to like your views of the Bible and less connected to your views of science, uh, science's authority. So what that suggests, and this is what I argue in this paper, is that um, it is that the narrative about the narrative around addiction, the narrative around kind of science proves that pornography does this and this and this is is more of a tactical maneuver. Uh, it's uh, among people who would already oppose pornography for moral reasons, <laughs> like it, basically in other words, like people who already wanna oppose pornography for moral reasons 
are getting better at like just kind of quoting science stuff, right? Like, and and uh, and this is not me at all. Like, uh, and I have to say this in every interview. Uh, I, I identify as a Christian. This is something that is important to me, and I am not a porn apologist. Uh, I, I don't at all, at any way, like encourage people to like, hey, just you know, it's just porn. I don't worry about it so much. Like, I'm I'm not saying that. Like, I'm I'm not saying Christians should violate their their values in you know, in any way sexually that they feel like what, what the Bible teaches them and what they feel like is, is healthy and for their relationship with God. Um, and, and yet at the same time, uh, the, 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 the research around, say, pornography addiction uh, is, is, is not at all conclusive, uh, whether or not that, you know, creates some kind of uh, dependency like, like we see in gambling or, or, or substance abuse. Uh, most of the time, and basically what I what I just shared a little while ago, um, a lot of the patterns that we see when people self-diagnose as addicted to pornography doesn't reflect anything like a clinical addiction. Clinical addiction is is characterized by uh, patterns of escalation uh, and dysregulation, uh, an inability to control yourself. Uh, you can imagine the guy who's selling his kids' toys to to get money to pay for. Uh, some habit of, of whatever, and it's ruining his life, and he's getting fired, and he's doing it at work, and and like he's missing work, and and it's all of these kind of uh, like literally ruining their lives. Pornography for most of these guys is not anything close to that, right? It's something that that they engage in every now and then, and I'm not saying that that's okay. Like I, I hope, I, and I hope, and, and even in the book, I, I try to talk through what are, what have been some positive interventions for people who want to stop doing that. What does the research show? Is that what are the positive interventions? What really helps? Um, and, uh, and, and but yet I I don't think calling it an addiction and talking about this rampant uh, sex addiction or rampant addiction to pornography um, I think it actually obscures more than it helps. And 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 in the situation with the horrific violence that we saw in Atlanta. Um, I think it actually ends up creating some rhetorical distance between the person and the behavior in a way that I'm uncomfortable with because it's, it's, it's no longer I'm a person who's making decisions, willful decisions about my own behavior and what I do with my body. But it's almost like, oh, what could I do? I'm, I'm powerless. Even, even the narrative around addiction, like if you guys have ever been involved in like a 12-step program or something that's more Christian, like a celebrate recovery, part of that step or part of those, those steps involves admitting your powerlessness and, and involves admitting that you are you know, you've lost control. Well, that also allows me to kind of say like, you know, addict, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Uh, I'm not somebody who's consciously making moral choices uh, about things that I really can control. Uh, and, and I think also that evokes like this kind of like anxiety and stigma around pornography. As I showed, uh, even despite all of the accountability groups and the accountability software and this encouragement to talk about this, evangelicals are more likely to hide it than other people. Uh, suggest that they're they're not okay talking about it. They feel still feel ashamed. They still feel bothered by it. So it sounds like there's a bit of a self defeating strategy here, where if you, um, you know, preach from the pulpit about how horrible it is, and you produce books that have all these statistics about how it's rewiring your brain, it's going to ruin your marriage, it's going to give you erectile dysfunction, uh, it's going to do all these you know horrible horrible things, and you're going to turn into a monster. It's destroying society. And, and, you know, on, you know, on top of that, sexual sin is the worst type of sin. This actually creates more problems than it solves. It definitely compounds shame and guilt and 
anxiety and stress uh, over moral incongruence, um, which, you know, can lead to um, projecting that uh, stress and that guilt outwards onto other people, which sounds like what we saw in Atlanta. No, I mean, I, I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. We've, we, uh, so, I mean, I, I can, I can pick authors off of my shelf from John Piper to Mark Driscoll, uh, to James Dobson, to Timothy LaHaye uh, or Tim LaHaye who, who have at various times, uh, connected, uh, things like sexual sin or pornography use in particular to things like becoming a serial killer, right? Like, uh, Audrey Assad has this great Q talk where, uh, and she, she's quoted in one of the, uh, the Barna books, uh, kind of uh, talking about pornography where she talks about how, like, you know, I grew up in a subculture where I went to youth group and, and, and one, nobody said that like women would ever struggle with pornography because that was a total guy's sin. So that heaped the shame more and more on Audrey Assad. But she also talked about how, like, you know, she, she basically, you know, they basically told her like, Hey, if you keep looking at porn, you're going to be a serial killer. Uh, and so that did not create an open uh, environment where she felt like she could talk to people about this uh, issue, this temptation that she that she felt. Uh, John Piper in the, in the book Future Grace of uh, irony uh, of ironies, he he says he talks about using future grace to to conquer sin, and the sin that he's talking about is the sin of lust. And he says in this, and I'm almost quoting verbatim: "If you don't defeat lust, you go to hell." Uh, and and what he meant by that is that in, unless you unless you fight and you're, so you're keep like if you're just giving in to sin well that suggests that you are not really saved uh and so you're you're probably it's evidence that you're probably not really saved and you're probably gonna you're probably gonna go to hell well think about all of the young men who who are and, and women too who are wrestling with this pattern of going back every now and then or occasionally or however often to look at pornography for five minutes and and feeling like I'm failing in this area. Am I really a Christian? Like, is this, is this, uh, is this, you know, am I going to be condemned for this? We actually have historical uh, evidence of this throughout, like, uh, and, you know, several, like uh, George Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Kidd's biography of, of, of Whitfield. Uh, the, both of those authors connect uh, spiritual anguish in the lives of those men, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, to uh, masturbation, that they thought that, like, that this was something that they were wrestling with and they couldn't defeat, and they were asking themselves, am I really saved? Am I really converted? Uh, and we see the same kind of anguish and, and, uh, and thing going on. Rather than uh, what I would consider a more healthy approach to this, which is just you know, uh, creating structures where this is talked about often, uh, this is something that is open, is dragged into uh, the light, where people from up front, pastors, elders, uh, leaders in the congregation can acknowledge, hey, this is a temptation for me, and here's how I deal with that, and here's, you know, here's some strategies. Uh, but the problem is evangelicalism, white evangelicalism in particular, is a middle-class suburban religion where you mind your own business, and your family's troubles are their troubles, and your personal mess-ups and sin are your problem, uh, and it's hyper-individualistic. And as much as we talk about community uh, and blah, 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 supporting one another and being the body of Christ. It really is, at the end of the day, your problem. Uh, and so, and, and, and with that, you have people wrestling with this shame by themselves uh, rather than talking about it openly and honestly with other people who care and, and, and don't condemn and don't call them serial killers or tell them they're going to hell or, or that they're, you know, or that they're going to all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're just 
three clicks away from becoming a, a child predator or, or, or that kind of thing. That's the other thing, the escalation. This is what, uh, you know, Driscoll talks about how like you're going to become a, a pedophile if you don't, uh, if you don't defeat this. And so not, not exactly the best environment for being honest and open about one's struggles uh, in that area. The cover of his book uh, is, I think, uh, a skull with a, holding a gun to his head. Yeah, whereas... Uh, like, like, oh yeah, that's real encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like it's, basically, I mean, uh, yeah, like this is basically the same thing as suicide. Might as well clear yourself. Like, yeah, I mean, think, think about that, right? Like, get, get that image in your, in, your, in your head. Anyways. I think it's interesting you talking about creating an environment where you can be honest and open about these issues because the, the irony here, and we've kind of talked about this already, is that it's porn is talked about all the time. And also it's not talked about right. in helpful ways, right? Like it's, it's talked about from the pulpit all the time. I mean, I've heard so many sermons about it. Um, and, but yet the ways that we're talking about it aren't necessarily helpful for actually be having productive conversations about it in ways that, that actually help people who are struggling. And I'm thinking about my time in seminary and the way this whole issue was handled. Um, and I remember orientation, um, the, the orientation address, um, from the, the president was every year. And I, I worked at the school, so I would help, you know, with these and hear these addresses every year. It was statistics about who stays in ministry and who fails. And, um, that, that was kind of the way that it was approached for these new students coming in, like, do not be one of these statistics and the failure, the reason why people failed was because of sexual sin. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't because they were, you know, abusive leaders or they right. were, you know, um, inhospitable or any of the other qualifications lacking in any of the other qualifications that we see for pastors, right? It was because of that one sin. And then, you know, you'd break up and then the guys and the girls would go in separate places and the guys would have the porn talk. So right. like day one of orientation and seminary, it was the guys get the porn talk where it was talked about as being, you know, the greatest problem and the, this big addiction and this thing that's going to ruin your life. And, but the girls actually didn't get the porn talk. We got the modesty talk. Right. So it, so it's our job and it was very clear, like our job is actually to protect these brothers who are going into ministry um, by covering up properly so that they won't lust and then, you know, fall into sexual sin. Or if you were married, it was clear, like your job is to, to make sure that you're satisfying your husband sexually so that he won't look into pornography so that he won't be disqualified from ministry. So, I mean, this is just kind of the culture that is is very typical. Um, And it's exactly what you're talking about, how we're creating these ways of talking that are just not actually helpful at all. Right. And I think it goes back to the logic of if, if I can scare people enough with, with, with some facts, no matter how dubious or far, far fetched, you know, or even if they're just wholly inaccurate, um, I can keep them from doing bad things. But the problem is that backfires when they actually end up doing those things and feel like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. And I can't tell anybody because they're going to think I'm going to be a predator or, or I'm, I've committed some kind of, you know, unforgivable thing that I'm going to get fired for. Or I'm going to get like, you know, out of it. Um, it, it, you know, it's this, it's the same thing with, um, the way we used to try to tackle things like drug use or sub- substance abuse, uh, the campaigns against those kinds of substance abuse, uh, situations were like, if, if you even touch, if you even touch a drug, 
uh, you will, you will, you know, your life will fall apart. You will jump out of a window. You will harm people, uh, and you will do all of these things. When in reality, that's obviously not the case. People are are oftentimes quite functional. Those things are still bad, and those things are still unhealthy. But what we needed to do is actually need to like, you know, medicalize that in a way. And I don't mean like medicalize it in a in a oh, oh, like like I'm trying to do that with pornography. But I mean like to make it something that people could talk about, share with others and, and come up with like more positive and constructive uh, ways of dealing with um, those, those temptations and problems. And I think that's all, that, that also is something that I want to, as I get to talk to churches uh, about, about this issue. Um, and, you know, thankfully I've had the opportunity to, to talk to a number of churches who have been curious about like, okay, what, what we you know about, let's talk through marriages. Let's talk through, um, uh, you know, private ways of, of dealing with this, this kind of thing. Um, often the, the, the tactical approach of like white knuckling, uh, just don't do it and like, don't tell anybody and try to just, you know, make all kinds of weird rules for myself so that I don't think or, or respond to it, uh, is, uh, ends up, uh, even, even in, in a therapeutic context, backfiring, it creates something called experiential avoidance, where you, you basically are thinking about not doing something so much that you become obsessed with that very, uh, very thing. And for Christians, that's an unhealthy thing, right? Like it's, it's a, I call it, uh, I, I, I call it kind of a sexual anorexia, uh, where like, if you, if, if, if I've defined myself by what I'm trying my best to avoid, Right, like, or, or define my purpose of like avoiding this, like consuming this thing that I want to avoid consuming. I'm still living my life around that thing, right? Like, my life is still consumed with it, it's just consumed with avoiding it. Uh, rather than building a positive spirituality and religious life that is about the things that I, I participate in and that I'm for and that I love. Um, and to where, you know, failures in some areas, uh, I, I want to minimize those things, but they don't define me in a way that, um, that becomes my whole end all, uh, be all of existence, uh, and doesn't define my community. And I, I feel like this is necessary, a necessary turn for evangelicalism generally is, is to so often defined by the things that they oppose, that the things that they war against, sexual sin being one of those things, rather than, you know, being characterized by being champions for, for good things, positive things and constructive things. Um, and uh, and so at, both at the interpersonal level, is what, which is what we're talking about, but also at this broader subcultural level. Yeah, it creates a very um, hypersexualized culture, yes, ironically, exactly. because we're so obsessed with, you know, not being caught up in it, that we're just always caught up in it. And we always see each other through those lenses. Um, but one of the categories that you give in your book that I loved was you talk about how evangelicals can often have more of a focus of uh, obviously individual piety mm -hmm. um, and that everything kind of comes from the heart, stems from the heart. We operate from the heart um, as opposed to having a robust theology of the body, yep. uh, which I thought you were you spot on with that, that we have a very thick moral code that's very culturally fraught, but we are actually very thin theologically. And a lot of times we mix up our moral code for for theology itself, so I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit as well. Yeah, I I, I think in 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 the book I really talk about this the irony that so many say Christian purity manuals uh, really kind of don't know what to do with masturbation, uh, but pornography is 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 universally condemned. Like you can never justify like porn use, right? Like, but 
but there are all kinds of like moral situations where people and 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 I'm I mean like James Dobson and Tim LaHaye and and Mark Driscoll, the you know all for all of their talk about like uh, you should never look at porn or you're going to become a serial killer, actually talk about situations in which masturbation would be uh, even beneficial or or permissible, and and that is because I think evangelicals and this is like Catholics don't do that, Mormons don't do that, uh, uh, Muslims don't do that, Jews don't do that. It's it's kind of an evangelical thing to disconnect the body from uh, the mind spiritually, and that has to do with biblicism, like what I can what I can cite a verse for. Like I can't cite a verse about masturbation unless you're looking at like onanism or something like that, which is not you know a a good connection. Um, but you can you but you can say like whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his hearts and and you know if your eye causes you to sin and uh, and talking about you know heart level stuff and eye level stuff well that I can connect that easily to porn. So there's a couple of things going on here. One is kind of the evangelical commitment to biblicism. Like I have to be able to find a verse. I can't go by principle. Uh, I have to go by, you know, whatever I could cite a, a connect to a, di a direct verse for, but also this, what I call pietistic idealism is this, this idea that God cares more about what you're doing with your heart than what you're doing with your body. Now, I think for evangelicals, this goes broader than that, obviously, because it also has to do with um, our, our, our concern with people's spiritual health and their spiritual fate, like our salvationism, like why, why we want to get people saved, but why we don't want to feed people. Uh, or we don't want to stop systemic racism or injustice or that kind of thing. That's for the social justice warriors. That's social gospel, not what we're concerned about, which is the God making sure that people are saved and are are right with God. And so I, I you know, I would I would advocate a a, a, ro a more robust theology of the body for evangelicals, not because of the sexual arena, uh, even though that's important, but also because of this. Uh, what does it look to live uh, as kind of a redemptive group of people? in a society that actually makes society better, to, to be salt and light in a broader sense, not just because we preach the gospel on street corners, but because we live out that good news and make the city better and seek the good of the city in, a, in, a, in that way. I think that observation about the, the way that pornography and masturbationist topics are treated quite differently um, is so helpful. And I was thinking about this um, with the release of some new resources from the Church of England called Living in Love and Faith, which has got uh, a category for, for porn, but hasn't got a category for masturbation. So it just reminded me that um, uh, we're kind of still seeing that sort of odd, uh, different treatment of those two topics, um, even in new resources that are coming out. Um, and I guess to go back to something that Amber picked up on in her question about the way that uh, shame sort of manifests differently for men and women in relation to this moral congruence. I wonder if you could just say a bit more about that and um, what you've kind of discovered in your research in terms of how women process this shame or experience this shame differently. Right. Uh, so, and this is actually one of my favorite parts of of the the book, uh, just because I felt like this is uh, something of of all the things I talk about. Uh, one of the things that doesn't get brought up enough is this kind of gender double standard uh, in in a lot of these faith communities regarding, say, porn use and and how it corresponds to uh, gendered understandings of sexual desire and agency. And so, within complementarian communities, and that's evangelicals. Conservative Protestants have to be more complementary, or at least they they uh, they wear that badge, even though they oftentimes relationships don't necessarily function that way. Um, but they, in in complementarian thinking, 
men have sexual agency. They visualize, they lust with their eyes, and that's what they're driven by. Uh, and they are the initiators sexually. And women, because of this theology, is, is about essentialism. It's about like what women are supposed to be about and like. Uh, women are natural, and I'm putting that in quotes for those who can't uh, see what I'm doing. So the uh, women are natural sexual responders. They, they're not driven by visual lust. Uh, and if they are, they're kind of, you know, maybe these authors or maybe like sex manuals or every woman's battle or something like that will, will acknowledge that there are some uh, women who are driven by, say, visual stimuli or they lust in that kind of way. But mostly what women want is relationships and, and uh, they would rather read about romance than see that kind of thing. Well, uh, the statistics suggest that women, as pornography has become more available, women have, have watched more porn, suggesting that like this is actually something that women are attracted to and women in the church uh, as well. Um, but because of the gender dynamics and what, what women are understood to like and desire and be about, uh, there creates kind of a double shame uh, with respect to, to say pornography use or sexual sin. One, because they're engaging in a practice, watching porn, masturbating or that kind of thing that that is condemned, that they're not supposed to do. But the other part is they're kind of sinning like a guy, like they're, they're engaging in a guy's sin. Uh, so they're also violating their gender, right? Like they're not, they're, they're weird. They're, they're freaks for, for doing that kind of, and I don't, I don't mean, I'm, I'm using again, quotes there. I'm not, I'm not calling them that, but there, there's a perception that I am, I am so odd, not just because I am sinning, but because why am I the only one who seems to struggle with lust and wanting to look at porn and masturbate to porn? Uh, and there also creates all kinds of other relational problems in the sense that, like, even as a guy, if I'm a guy who's struggling with pornography and, and I don't want to look at pornography, one, I'm, even by that very struggle, I'm kind of affirming my masculinity uh, because it's it's like me saying, like, hey, I'm a dude. Like, it's what dudes, it's what guys struggle with. I have a man's struggle and I just can't control my sexual urges. You know, even though I'm confessing the sin, I'm also kind of patting myself on the back for being a man because I... I deal with this. Um, it's it's so manly that I would deny, you know, that 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 guys would be tempted to deny that, like you're a weird guy if you don't struggle with 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 lust. Uh, that's not a temptation for you. You're an anomaly. Uh, but if you're a woman, it's just the opposite. If you if you struggle with uh, visual kind of lust and wanting to look at porn, who are you supposed to talk to? As a guy, I can just get into an accountability group. I can I can go I can go talk to my pastor. I can go email my pastor right now and say, "Hey, can I talk to you about this problem I'm having and I need your help and could you hold me accountable?" Women can't do that, especially in a in a context where all the pastors are men. Uh, you know, because the male pastor is going to be uncomfortable talking to this woman about her pornography use, at least by himself. Uh, so you're going to have to rope in other people. And oftentimes, um, if I'm talking to an older guy who's experiencing this kind of struggle, he has a context for that. He knows that other men struggle with this and they'll know how to, you know, what works and how to guide you through that and be able to talk through those kinds of uh, problems. But oftentimes younger women have a difficult time finding relationships with older women who have gone through that same thing because pornography use and that, that that's just not something that they did or talked about. And so there's a problem with like relationships and who do you talk to? There's a problem with internalizing this kind of double shame. Uh, of I'm weird for struggling in this way uh, when women aren't supposed to struggle this way. Uh, there's the gender dynamic of not having a pastor or some kind of spiritual resource to talk to. And oftentimes the resources that are, there's lots of books written for men who are dealing with this kind of thing. There's 
there are books on my, you know, every man's battle. That's what it's called. It's every, every man's battle, every young man's battle. There's all kinds of resources for guys who are trying to defeat porn. But I talk to a lot of women, like women pastors or women leaders, women coordinators in like these evangelical churches who could not find resources to lead young women through this struggle. So they actually had to go to the guys thing. Like they actually had to read like every man's battle with young women uh, because they couldn't find like every woman's battle was so worthless. It was just like not counseling them through uh, what they were actually dealing with in a, in a real way. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, uh, I think it's a really powerful and, and, is, and is going to be a worsening, I think, situation by, uh, uh, by, by in, especially within complementarian circles who want to preach this idea of, of women are weird and deviant if they are uh, are exercising sexual agency by like being interested in sex and visual sex and being visually stimulated by pornography uh, unless it can be something that can be talked about they can provide resources and have conversations the way i'm talking about like men should be able to uh, as well sam i'm really interested in, in the in the conclusion of your book uh you talk about uh some of the the some of the outcomes or some of the, the helpful practices uh, such as talking through temptation with others, uh, narrativizing emotions and, and, and things like this. Um, and I'm interested because um, Kent Dunnington, a little while ago in his book, book on addiction and virtue, really highlights that um, the, 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 one of the, the things that addiction teaches us is not just about individual problems, but the, uh, societal issues. And therefore, the, um, one of the big advantages of a 12-step program is that narrativizes in a, in a group uh, these issues. So it, it gets people to talk about, um, I am an addict, and it, it has narrativized claims for that. Uh, one of the things with addiction is uh, that um, it tends to manifest in the ventral striatum of the brain. Um, it's, it fires off neurally there. One of the other areas that fires off neurally in the same area uh, is uh, narratives and telling your own narrative and also listening to other people's narratives. And so there is probably, uh, I wonder if there's a connection between those two activities. But more broadly than that, I'm interested in then how do we, um, for within the churches, how, uh, what are the narrative structures of our churches that can actually aid in uh, not just deconstructing uh, sexual addiction, but uh, reconstructing healthy relationships? Uh, certainly, uh, we have very powerful narrative um, or at least in more liturgically focused churches, we have very par powerful narrative uh, mechanisms for being able to generate uh, personal identity and generate corporate identity, uh, such as um, the creeds are explicitly a narrative construction about who, who people are. Uh, are there ways that we can leverage that for a constructive sexual identity uh, in this way? Yeah, I think that's a good. Uh, you know, that's a that's a that's a great question. I I, I feel like you've you know you're pretty and obviously pretty informed uh, about this all, all already. I, I would only add, I think there's a huge disconnect between what uh, churches often say they're about, which is the gospel and about narratives of forgiveness and redemption and and imperfection, uh, especially in Reformed churches, acknowledging that everybody is is. Uh, sinful and and uh, in need of of forgiveness and rescue and restoration uh, and a culture. So there's a difference between what these churches creedally say that they are about and would say in doctrinal statements versus what the subculture suggests they're about, which is individualism and isolation and dealing with your own problems and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps 
and getting your shit together, right? So like, I, I think that kind of disconnect uh, is at the root of why, why we don't have these kinds of positive uh, narratives or why we don't engage those kinds of resources that we have. As you were pointing out, Chris, I think there are, there are resources that I, I think the Christian community theologically have to be able to address these kinds of things and integrate these sort of sexual frustrations or challenges or problems within that framework. Uh, I think the disconnect comes in uh, from churches don't want to be about that, really, at the practical level. What they want to be about is they want to be about uh, culture wars and suburban life and soccer practice and uh, Netflix, right? Like, and, and, and that's, that's everybody anyways. That's just Americanness, you know, like in, in terms of the white American context, that's just being an American, but they're, but they're not distinctive, right? Like that's just not characterized. These are not communities characterized by uh, gospel redemption and forgiveness and that kind of, that kind of idea or that kind of uh, theology. Um, and that that takes me more afield to to other areas we're addressing now politically and in in within evangelical communities. But I think that uh, that disconnect really speaks to uh, a lot of the central problems. So I think your question really hits the nail on the head. Those resources are there, uh, but they are not accessed because nobody really wants to access them. They want to they want to access, you know, personal conquest uh, stories and how you 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 got your you got your act together after you came to some revelation or whatever. I really like Chris, um, how you brought up the question of how do we cultivate healthy relationships too? Because I, I hear a lot of, you know, let's make sure that there's not a hint of sexual immorality among us, right? So just a lack of sexual immorality, but that can often come at the expense of actually, you know, we work to kind of stamp it out as opposed to cultivating healthy relationships, especially between brothers and sisters in the church and seeing one another as brothers and sisters that way. So we just kind of like put better guardrails to keep us from, you know, hurting one another in those ways. Um, but, but Sam, do you have anything, any suggestions for what that's like to actually aim in a more positive way in cultivating relationships, even across the, between men and women in the church? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I recognize that that is a, that is a huge problem. And in, in my purity culture days back in, back in college, I think our solution to, to all that was to just avoid each other. Uh, like to, to not talk girls over here, guys over here. If there was a lot of chatter and, and interaction uh, that was engaged as kind of, or that was understood as too friendly, it was more like, hey, why aren't you about kind of the business of making disciples? Why are you distracted by girls? And and uh, and these kinds of like it was it was assumed that your motives were flirtatious uh, and eventually to impregnate uh, some uh, somebody in your ministry, right? Like and so it was it was yeah that was it was just kind of understood that like that was luring in the back of your in your in your mind that you were plotting that way. Um, so I I do not know if that has been addressed within Christian communities. Uh, enough. I, I do think there is a reaction to purity culture that, ha, in a positive way, that says, "Hey, we need to cultivate." Like, so at least the recognition is there, like that we need to cultivate these positive relationships. I would, I would be as interested as anybody though in learning about what are those healthy practices that have developed over the past few years. Because I, I got married in two thousand three, uh, and that. Uh, essentially kind of took me out of that culture and into a, a different experience in, in terms of my relationship to the church and women in the church. Um, and so I would be fascinated to, to learn what 
congregations and religious communities are doing to try to cultivate those kinds of relationships. I wish I had more answers, but uh, I haven't I haven't seen anything really great yet. Dr. Perry, thank you so much for for joining us and being on the Two Cities podcast. Uh, we just really appreciate having you on uh, to hear about all of the interesting research that that you've been doing and and helping us kind of put pornography in its proper context relative to other uh, issues, um, especially as we're talking about with Atlanta, other issues that, that are at play with that. And so just appreciate your kind of holistic uh, approach to this and, and really, really grateful to have you. Thanks so much for having me.